We are in Act 21. You ever had problems? No, not here? None? Thank you. Honesty. Step one is admitting it. So Paul, really, through the rest of this book, is going to face problems. This chapter, he has, first of all, problems with his friends, verses 1 through 16. Then he heads to the church, and guess what? He has problems in the church, verses 17 through 26. And then he has problems with the Jewish brothers that he'd come to encourage and be with and see them get saved. They want to kill him, so he's got problems with them. It's just one problem after another after another. So if you've had problems, this is a good chapter to think through. So we're going to jump into it. Verse one, first problems with his friends. And when we had parted from them and set sail, Paul and his crew are heading from what would be modern day Turkey down to Jerusalem, bringing a financial gift because Israel was in a famine at this time. So they're making their way step by step by step by step. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes. Have you heard of the Colossus of Rhodes? Massive, massive structure. One of the ancient wonders of the world. It was right there. They would have probably seen it. And from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail when we had come inside of Cyprus. Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go down to Jerusalem. Don't do it, bro. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship. And they returned home. We're seeing Paul like a man on a mission. He's made up his mind, I'm going to Jerusalem. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus, who if you know his story, he sets his face, Luke says, like flint for Jerusalem, and he won't be changed either. Even though Jesus knew the end there is going to be really hard and bad. Paul's kind of like that. The end may be really hard and bad, but it doesn't matter. So they get on this ship, and this is not the Royal Caribbean. This would most likely be a working ship that you get on there, and part of the reason why you're on there is you're working. So you're toiling, working, swabbing the deck, whatever it is, to the next port. That's how you kind of made your, it's a cargo ship. It's not a regular, it's like they unload cargo. So they're on there doing work, working their tail off, hard work. They get off in this city called Tyre, and what do they do? Sightsee? Retire? Relax on the beach? No, it says, 
that they sought out, verse four, disciples, and we stayed there for seven days. Paul, the moment he lands in a city, he's like, where are the believers? I wanna connect with other people that know Jesus. This was my model when I worked as an engineer and I traveled all over the place. I usually traveled by myself. And so the, the first thing I would do, if it's a Wednesday or if it was a Saturday or Sunday morning, is I would try to find a group of believers to connect with. That was just my model. And I got blessed doing it. Usually I try to go to a church that I would fit into. So I remember the, the, maybe the most di different kind of crew I ran with was I'm in Washington, D.C. And back then, this is like 2000, I looked up in the yellow pages, churches, right? You know, and it's just like Washington, D.C., you can just imagine page after page after page after page of churches. So I saw a Calvary Chapel and that was kind of the roots that were from. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to the Calvary Chapel. I'll, I'll fit in, you know, I'll, I'll feel at home there. I know how they dress, can wear whatever. So great. I go there. Well, it turned out to be a very small church and um, it was very easy to notice me because I'm all, the only white guy there. It was completely black church. And like they can sing and they can clap and they have got rhythm. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, not only am I white, but I really look white and I can't sing. And they're like dancing, you know, like the age old question, can Christians dance? Some can and some can't. I'm in the can't category. So they're just, they're living it up. And I'm just trying to like, oh my goodness. And after the service, and you know, it's like, everyone's like, you're new here. I'm like, yeah, I am new here, actually. <laughs> it's, is that easy to see? But I'll tell you what, the pastor, just a Southern black preacher, such a great message. Out of, I still remember, it's out of First Samuel, it was on David. And he came over to me, his name is Keith Gardner. And he's like, what's your story? And so we just sat for like half an hour. And I just, hey, this is what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. He's like, I roomed with Peter John Corson at Marietta, at Marietta College. I know you, I know the church, I know your background. And he just like almost prophetically said, dude, stick with it. You're gonna go start a church. I can sense that in you. Don't give that up. Man, it so blessed me. That's why I haven't forgot it. Now, why? Because like Paul, I said, I'm gonna go seek out the believers. I'm not gonna sit and watch TV. I'm not gonna allow myself, just seeking out believers. You know what it does to you? It protects you. Because when you're all by yourself out somewhere in a city, you're just a target for the enemy. He is just gonna start lobbing stuff at you, temptations. So I think Paul just said, man, the first thing we're doing is we're gonna protect ourselves by getting around other believers who will shape us and share with us. That's right, we're on mission for Jesus. I've been directed like by Keith Gardner. Dude, stick with it. Stick with it. There's something God has for you. Man, if you travel, if part of your business or part of your lifestyle is traveling, Follow Paul's model, find believers. You get connected. If I see Keith Gardner again, I, I hope I do. Because I'll be able to say, man, you may have forgotten me, but I have not forgotten you. Because of what you said to me 18 years ago or whenever it'll be, because I'm connected to him now by that. I'm protected because I'm around believers. And he directed me all in a Sunday morning. Do this model. And then I love this, verse five. They're just there seven days. That's one week. And what does this entire church do? It says, 
They all, I have that underlined in my Bible. The entire church, wives and children. Luke's making a point here. They all, men, women, and children, went out with us, walked out to the beach where the ship is at, and then we all knelt down and we prayed together. How sweet is that goodbye? How sweet is that goodbye? Make your goodbyes matter because they just might matter. It might be your last one. Make your goodbyes matter. I read one time about Bob Goff before he became big. You guys know who Bob Goff is? Anyone know who Bob Goff is? Wow. Okay, you should check out Bob Goff. He has a book called Love Does. Who's read Love Does? Man, that's surprising to me. It's a bestseller. It's a great book. But he appeared in another book before that, before he started writing books. He's like an amazing guy. Orphanages in Uganda. Um, he has, he just, he, that because he's been so impactful in Uganda, the president of Uganda made him like the consulate of Uganda for America. Like, and he's just like a, a normal guy. Well, he's not normal. He's a pretty, pretty spectacular guy. But just because of his work there, it's like, they're like, hey, we need you. You're awesome. So anyways, Bob Goff, the author is a million miles in a thousand years. He, they're doing this kayaking trip in British Columbia and he's got a house up there. So they stopped by his house and like, he said, I couldn't believe it. We're, we're like unannounced guests. We were treated like royalty. And they all just like threw a lavish party first. Next morning we're leaving. We all get in our kayaks with our gear on it and we're starting to kayak away. And his whole family came down to the little dock there and they're waving to us. And then on the count of three, they all jumped in the ocean. And the author said, I've never forgot that goodbye. Like that they would do that for us because it's freezing. You're in British Columbia. Like another five miles or so, you're in icebergs. It's freezing. But they wanted to make it memorable because goodbyes matter. They totally matter. This morning, I got a call from uh, Justin who had an emergency phone from a guy that I knew and I worked with him. His name is John, P John Pagarigan. And I'm at Met One and I'm a believer and I'm pretty outspoken about my faith. And he's the first guy that was also outspoken about his faith. You're a believer, so am I. So it was like this bond, you have a bond then. It's like us against the, the entire company. Like we're gonna share Jesus here. So like he was, he's an awesome guy. I go to the school of ministry and he gives me his guitar. He's like, bro, I want you to have this. I still have the guitar. So just a long, long time with him. And I know he's had cancer. So I've been kind of in contact with him. But I guess last night, because of maybe the fires and the smoke, they just thought, this is it for him. Then the last I had heard, they were still fighting it. So anyways, I, I, I get the message, so I rush over there this morning. I just sit and I talk with him and share with him and he's doing a little bit better now, praise God. Uh, but, you know, his time is very short. It could be today. So I made sure my goodbye mattered because it just might matter. And so we, I, got, I got the whole family in there. I'm like, you guys gotta all come in here and we're gonna pray. And he can barely talk. And he just starts crying and praying. And this is what he prayed. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for friendships. I just went, that is so awesome. Here's a guy who's terminal. He, he ended up falling. So he has this massive goose egg and, and just really, really black eyes from it. And he's just crying. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you for your friendship. Goodbyes matter. Make it matter. You just never ever know. These people get their whole families together. They walk out with this guy they just met seven days ago, go out to this beach, 
sit down on the beach with him, pray with him and send him off. I bet you Paul never forgot that goodbye. Make your goodbyes matter. I read another one that makes me really sad. So Steve Jobs, I've read his, you know, the autobiography on him and he's an interesting character. He had a daughter named Lisa and she just wrote a book. And in this book, she says, she has this excerpt where she says, here are the last words my dad told me. So he dies of cancer in 2011. And she went to the bathroom to, because when you're, when you're sick, smells can be really hard, right? They can kind of turn you nauseous pretty easily. So she went to the bathroom to like fresh it up. And she put something on she thought would be smelling nice. And she came back up out to her dad who they've had a real bad relationship with. And she's just wanting her, she's wanting the approval of her dad. You know, this is dad. And the last word Steve Jobs said to Lisa was this, you smell like a toilet. That's the wrong goodbye. Be so careful with your words. Be so careful. Make sure your goodbyes matter because they just might matter. These guys make their goodbye matter. And it's awesome. So they head out from there. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers. First thing they do, find some believers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who is one of the seven. This is Luke telling you to key in on something, right? And stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprius, an early disciple of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, so Paul continues on. And he shows up, verse eight, at a guy named Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, who has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I feel a bit for him, <laughs> right? Because he has a tremendous expense coming in the future. Four unmarried, oh my goodness. Can women prophesy? Yes. Yes, can they be prophets? Totally, right here. He had four daughters who were prophets. I love that, man. Like one of my deepest heart's desire is for my kids to be on fire and open to God's spirit. That's one of my deepest desires. Philip's killing it here, right? So Philip is one of the seven. Who's the seven? Anybody know? Yeah, Acts chapter six. These, these seven men who were called out to help 
the apostles give out the rations to the widows. One of them had the name of Stephen. What did Paul do to Stephen? Oversaw his murder. So Stephen is Philip's best friend. They're like best friends. They're doing ministry together. They're in the trenches together. They've been, probably grew up together. They're both kind of Greek Jews. So they would be in the same culture. Same, they, they were best friends. Paul's his murderer. Where's Paul go? Philip's house. Why? I think Paul wanted to make things right. He's like, there's this 20 year thing that happened and I've never been able to talk to you, Philip. And this is the last thing I want to do. I'd much rather go to somebody else's house, but I'm going to your house because I'm gonna make this right. I'm not gonna leave this. I don't know what's gonna happen to me in Jerusalem and I may never have a chance to make this right again. I'm gonna make it right, right now. I'm gonna face this issue. I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna hear whatever you gotta give to me because you got every right to do that to me. I wanna make it right. I love that about Paul. I have as one of my bucket lists to try to be at peace with everybody. And I have written letters to people and I have looked them up through Google, you know, Facebook stalked them and found them. People that just, God brings to my heart, like there's still something between you and him. Okay, I wanna go make it right. And I've made every effort. And you know what? It's, except for one person, it's worked out well. Wow, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was my bad, man. My bad. Follow my sword, whatever it takes, because I want to be at peace with all people. I think that's what Paul's doing. I think there might be some angst here. I want to make it right. As hard as that would be. And Philip receives him and lets him stay in his house. Totally cool. And while he's there, this crazy dude named Agabus, who is a prophet, comes and does this skit, rips off Paul's belt. That'd be kind of awkward. Whoa, hey, <laughs> what are you doing, man? Ties himself up. This is what's gonna happen to you. Now, why would Agabus do that? It's biblical. You go through the prophets in the Old Testament. Weren't they always doing crazy stuff like that? Right, Ezekiel, go outside, build a Lego model of Jerusalem. Get some little bombs and like throw bombs at Jerusalem while you're laying on your side for 390 days. Cook prison rations over human feces while you're doing this. That's where Ezekiel's like, oh, please, no. He's like, could I use cow manure instead? <laughs> I'm like, Ezekiel, you need to learn the art of negotiation. Start higher. Can I have like a bed and Chinese takeout? No, okay, let's go down from there, right? No. He's like, could I just use cow manure? Okay, fine, use cow manure. And then when you're done with that, turn over on your other side for 40 days and sit there as well. It's a living skit of what was coming down the line. And then Jeremiah is told, hey, what's gonna happen to the people here? It's gonna be really bad. So take your underwear, bury them by the river Euphrates, leave them for a long time, dig them up and then wear them around. So people ask you like, dude, why? Why are you wearing underwear like that? Because Babylon's coming. It's gonna be really dirty. Oh, okay. (laughs) And maybe the craziest one is Isaiah. Isaiah 20. So Mrs. Isaiah is out reading the newspaper, sipping her tea, and then she just sees Mr. Isaiah walk out and she screams and drops her tea. What are you doing? Going to work. Why are you dressed like that? I don't care how bad your husband dresses. 
He may wear camos to a wedding. It's not nearly as bad as Isaiah because he was naked with a briefcase. <laughs> what? God told me I have to do this. And out he goes. Next morning, repeats that. Next morning, repeats that. For three years, Isaiah strolls around naked. Read it. Isaiah 20, verse three. It's, now why? Why, do you, why does this crazy stuff happen? Why do you prophets do crazy stuff like that? Because the people were no longer listening to words. And when the people stopped listening to words, what God did was, okay, I gotta shock you now. I gotta shock you into hearing what's gonna happen to you. And I think that's what's happened to Paul here. Paul, you're not listening. People have been telling you, stop, 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 stop. So the final thing is Agabus comes, Old Testament style, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah style. Hey, this is what's gonna happen to you. And Paul's like, I don't care. Okay, okay. I love, I love what we see here in verse 12. When we heard this, who's the we? Right? The author has to be in that group, right? We would include the author. So Luke's in this crew. So we, Luke, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul says, no, 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 no. So verse 14, we ceased and said, let God's will be done. And there's a time when you know someone's heading the wrong direction that you just warn them and warn them and warn them. But there's also a time when you cease. Okay, fine. My, my thing is three times. I will try with somebody three times. And after three times, they keep, no, I'm doing this. Okay, I cease. And then I pray, let the will of the Lord be done. Sometimes you just gotta cease with people because you're just banging your head against a brick wall. They're gonna do this, right? But here's what I really love. Verse 15, and after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Who went with Paul? Luke. Luke's like, you shouldn't do this. I don't want you to do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Okay, I give up and I'm going with you. What do you call that? That's called a friend. That's called a friend. I don't want you doing this. I think it's very dangerous. I think it's stupid. I think it's idiotic. I'm not gonna change my name. I'm not gonna change my name. I'm not gonna change. Okay, but I'm going with you. That's called a friend. That's what friends do. There's not a lot of friends like that anymore. If you've ever said, if I've ever said this, and I have said this, and I can regret it now, I've had it with you. Guess what that meant? I wasn't actually that person's friend because I was in the friendship for what I was getting out of it. And at some point, the return on investment was too low. And so I said, I'm done with you. That's what it really meant. Luke does not have that. It's, he's my friend and I don't care what he does. He's still gonna be my friend. That's a friend. Read the Proverbs. Friends are born for adversity, right? You can change somebody's life by being a friend like that. So there's a, a woman that was the, she, she was doing these classes for my daughters out of just the goodness of her heart. Ministry, you know, just wonderful woman. And she went through a really dark time and she tried to commit suicide. So went to the hospital, all that kind of stuff happened. And we had a, a lesson coming right up after that event. And so we hear about it and we, we try to help and, and we brought my girls to their next lesson. And she's like, I did not think you would come. I didn't think you would come. I thought you would say, no, we can't have our girls around someone as broken as me. I said, no way. We're friends. We're friends. They love you. My daughters love you. And that's why they're here. 
And I got to talk to her just a couple months ago about that event and she was processing through some stuff and she gave me like, this is what happened to me. It was really, a, it was really a, I think, spiritual, much more spiritual than we imagine. Depression is that kind of stuff. There's a spirit of it. And so she was just sharing about the lies that she believed in that kind of stuff and how, how that one event shaped so much for her. Just it, it, people, not just me, there's a whole group of people that did this for her. They didn't leave when it got that way. In fact, they came in full force when it got that way. That's friends. That's Luke. I hope, I hope this is said of me. Warn, 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 stop. But man, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. I won't leave you in this, even though I think you're stupid. I'm gonna go with you. That's what he does. And then it says, Paul, one last point. I can do this forever. <laughs> he goes, I'm ready to die, be persecuted, be imprisoned, for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's his motive. I am ready to be imprisoned. I'm ready to be persecuted. I'm ready for people to say bad things about me. I don't care about any of that because it's for the name of Jesus. Sometimes people say this, I'm being persecuted. People are saying bad things about me. And, and they think it's for the name of Jesus, but it's not. They're doing it because I, you, whoever it is, you're an arrogant, pompous jerk. It's not for the name of Jesus. Don't blame it on him. It's because the way that you're acting, they should respond that way. We gotta be very careful about why we get persecuted. Is it really for the name of Jesus? Because if it is, man, praise God, that's a good thing. But if it's because I'm being mean or selfish or there's ulterior motives, man, no way, no way, no way. Paul, the big difference here, I think all the way through this is, the reason why things work out well for Paul is this. His motive was, I love Jesus. And I love my Jewish brothers. And that's what's motivating me to go. And nothing's gonna stop my love for them. So I'm doing it. So that's what he says. So here we go. Verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, they're there. The brothers received us gladly. Could be because they had bags of gold which they probably did. <laughs> On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we send a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice 
when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Paul shows up, they give the gift. Next day, they meet with the elders, the leaders of the church. Paul begins to tell them about everything that had been happening, the churches that had been planted, the revivals that had happened, the many thousands of people that had come to faith throughout all the known Roman empire up to that point. And I love verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They rejoice in the successes of Paul. Do you rejoice when other people succeed? When it's in your exact same field? Maybe getting the promotion that you wanted? I think a sign of real Christian maturity is the ability to rejoice when someone else gets the success that you truly want. That's maturity. So these guys, they're, they're mature. They're, hey, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Now I wish chapter 21 had stopped right at verse 20. Just boom, okay, we're done. Glorified God, awesome, man. Praise God, high five. And then Paul goes back to doing what he does. But it doesn't. Because Paul's a lightning rod. He's a attraction for problems, right? So what do you do with lightning rods? What do you do with Paul's? People that just seem to attract attention and there's just, there's sparks and there's fire and there's heat. What do you do with people like that? Cut them down? Neutralize them? I don't think you're supposed to. I think lightning rods are actually something that you're supposed to put in the right spot. That very often a lightning rod is needed because they illuminate problems and they tell you where there's issues. And if you'll pay attention to a lightning rod, you can learn a lot and you can be like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that. I didn't realize that. I needed that lightning rod because the storm's hitting and now I see the problem. But the church doesn't do that with Paul. They don't listen to him. They don't even ask him questions. They're not like, hey, what do you think theologically? They don't do any of that. You know what they do? Number one, this is what's sad. Number one, they believe a rumor. Verse 21, totally untrue. The stuff that they were believing Paul was teaching was totally untrue. They don't ask him about that. Like, is this true or not? They just say, we're assuming this is what you're doing. We kind of hear about this. We're believing the rumor. All the people, all the, all the other Christians are out there believing this rumor. What the elders in James should have done is sat up in front of the church and said, this stuff isn't true about Paul. But they don't. They don't do that. Rumors are so, they still happen today. Like one of the, I thought it was funny, but maybe it's not. Like within 18 months of the, our, our church starting, we had this email chain that would go out with prayer requests and was sent every, every single day. We still do it to this day. And um, it, it was going, I was doing that and stuff. So on a Sunday morning, I come into church and I'm all excited, you know. And this older gal grabs me and goes, I'm praying for you. I said, awesome, man. Thank you so much that you're praying for me. That's great. And she goes, no, 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 no. And she winks at me. I'm praying for you. And so I said, Awesome. And I winked back at her. <laughs> all right. <laughs> she goes, no, I know all about you. And I've been praying for you. I'm like, okay, that's great. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just ready to walk away. No, I know about your problem. I'm like, which one? I mean, come on, which problem? She's like, I saw the email chain on Friday. I'm like, ah, what, what did it say? She goes, it said, pray for Matt. He's addicted to meth. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? Number one, why would you come listen to me if I'm addicted to math? 
Number two, there's more than one mat at this church for crying out loud. It's so funny. You mean you're not addicted to meth? No, no, I'm not. I have other problems that are serious, but meth doesn't happen to be one of my problems. Sorry to disappoint you. Thanks for praying for whoever Matt is, because he probably enjoyed those prayers, but they weren't directed at me. <laughs> it's so funny, like what we'll believe about people. Just sometimes it's like our tendency is to believe the worst instead of the best. And that's what happens to Paul. He gets railroaded because they want to believe the worst, right? So the, the, the next problem is this. It says, and I have underlined in my Bible, they're all zealous for the law. What should we, we as believers in Jesus be zealous for? Jesus, right? Now, if they, it said that, they're zealous for Jesus. All right. You're zealous for the law? Wait a second. Is that good or bad? Hmm. I think if you read the book of Hebrews very carefully, hot cup of tea early in the morning and thoughtfully, the main message of Hebrews is Jesus is better, better than Moses. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Better than the law, better than sacrifices. The entire book is built around Jesus is better. So, so why are you going back? So these are believers in Jesus that had, had reverted back and now they're going back to the law. They have a zeal for the law. What's the law good for? What is the law, right? Like these guys believe that by keeping the do's and don'ts of the law, it's a covenant of works, it's in all of us. They believe that keeping the do's and don'ts of the law, that somehow they're made right before God. Is that true? Okay, then what's the law there for? Number one, the law is there, Romans 4.15, to provide a standard. So it says, without the law, there's no transgression, right? Simple. If there's no law, you can't break it, right? So I go to Missoula, Montana a long time ago. And in Missoula, Montana at this time, is back in 1996, they had no speed limit. So as an engineer, I had to test that. It was awesome, right? And I didn't get a ticket for doing 100 miles per hour. You know why? There's no law. Yeah, so you can do what you want. And then I showed up at this job site. We were actually installing equipment at the smoke jump center there to measure how much smoke goes up in a fire. Very interesting. Might be able to measure that today. So we measured that. We, and we, we build the equipment that put out the air quality index stuff. So I, I'm installing it, and I walk by this gal who was meeting me out there, her Subaru. She's got an open beer, like, in the middle console of her car. I'm like, whoa, man, that's bold. So that evening, we, we were having dinner together, her and, like, three other guys, and we're, we're talking. And somehow it comes up. I'm like, man, that's bold, drinking a beer as you're driving the road. She goes, you can in Montana. I said, what? Oh, yeah, once you're outside of city limits, you can have an open container as long as you're not drunk. You mean you can speed? as fast as you want to go while drinking a beer. Yep. Oh, this is insane. I cannot believe this place. I come back from there. I tell some friends, one of them, his name is Derek. He's like, are you serious? He moved there just like that. <laughs> He's like, I'm going there. <laughs> he still lives there to this day. <laughs> so funny. Oh. You don't get busted. Why? Because there's no laws. So what the law did is it set a standard. This is what God expects of you right? And if you read the 10 commandments, aren't they kindergarten morality, right? Don't kill someone. 
We're not talking about a moral dilemma there. Don't take your gun and put a bullet in that guy's head. Oh, man. Yeah, right? Don't steal stuff. Oh, right? It's, it's what you teach a four-year-old. But nobody does it. Nobody does it. So it provides a standard, right? You got the standard there. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. It, it makes everybody a lawbreaker. It makes all of us lawbreakers. That's Romans 3.20. No one escapes from the law without breaking something. And I thought the best, Francis Shaver gave the best explanation of this. He just said, you don't even have to use the Old Testament law to show you're a lawbreaker. Use your own law. So he goes, imagine this. And I ripped this off from him because it's so good. Imagine that you're born and the moment you're born, there's this recorder put on you. And every time you tell somebody to act a certain way or not act a certain way, that recorder turns on. Hey, be nicer to people. Hey, work harder. Hey, don't be lazy. Hey, get up earlier. All that stuff just gets recorded throughout your whole life. At the end of your life, you go up, stand before God and God says, I'm not gonna judge you. Play the tape. Does anyone keep their own standard? No way. We don't even keep the promises we make to God. God, I'm gonna read your Bible every day this year. God, I'm gonna read your Bible one time a week this year. God, I'm gonna read your Bible monthly this year. We want God to take our promises, but not our practice. So the law just shows us you're a lawbreaker. So it sets a standard, shows us that we break that standard. And then number three, it's our prosecutor. So Jesus says this, it's a very interesting theological idea. It's John 5, 45. He says this, I'm not gonna judge you. Moses will. I'm not gonna be standing there judging you whether you did something right or wrong. The law is gonna judge you. It's gonna show that. And Romans 5, 20 puts it this way, that the law actually is put in to increase our sinfulness. It's there not to make us righteous, which is what they thought it was to do. Romans 5, 20 says this actually does the opposite. It shows how sinful you are and makes you more sinful. It's like this, wet paint don't touch. What do you do? That's the law. It actually gets into us a rebellion like you can't tell me what to do. It increases sinfulness. So you've got all that, everyone knows that. And I always wonder like, why do churches go back into legalism then? Why are there these church movements where they start like, you know, they get super like, we got to keep all these laws and we keep all these rules and it, it seems so plain. Why is it? I think here it is. It's a theological dilemma. And there are two very important words that deal with our salvation. And if you don't keep them separate, you get a very mixed up idea of what the Bible is. The two words are this, justification and sanctification. Justification means this, you're right with God. You're adopted into his family. You're made an heir of the inheritance that Jesus Christ earned for us. You will rule and reign with him forever. That's justification, okay? Sanctification is acting like God or acting godly. It's becoming more like God is like, less like humans are from the fall and more like God is like. It's this process, right? Justification is a free gift, 100%. Grace alone, through faith, we are justified, period. Read Romans chapter three, read Galatians, the whole book, short. That's justification. You cannot earn it, you do not deserve it, it is given to you, period, justification. Sanctification is a process, it's a partnership. 
It's God's spirit wooing us into the green pastures and the still waters he has for us. It's God's spirit saying uh, that it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. I'm so good, come with me, join with me. That he gets a hold of our heart and we say, I want more of that. That's this process called sanctification. So in the New Testament, you see stuff that deals with justification and stuff that deals with sanctification. And if you mix those two up, what happens is you're like, wait a second, it seems like the law is here. No, keep justification where it's supposed to be, free, instantaneous gift, and keep sanctification where it's supposed to be, which is this process by which through God's spirit and our obedience, we become more like Christ. Gotta keep them separated. Religion is, justification always comes before sanctification. You are justified, look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23, because I'm justified, I will be sanctified. God will complete his work in me. It's a promise. He's grabbed me, I am his, he's gonna finish the work in me brilliantly, right? And it's always justified. You're accepted, you're part of my family, you're in, I will not let you go. That's totally, first of all. And then it's, now I'm gonna clean you up. Now I'm gonna work with you. Religion always reverses those. It's clean yourself up, act better, do more, keep these rules. And maybe, maybe God will see and be like, bro, you are killing it. You're in. That's every religion in the world. Five pillars of Islam, the eight noble path to to Nirvana and Buddhism. All those things are these ways that you and I worked to receive justification. Only the gospel says it's given to you freely, okay? So the law, these guys were zealous for the law. They shouldn't have been. They should have been zealous for Jesus. And because of their zeal for the law, they get Paul wrapped up into this. Come in here. So what does Paul do? Okay, fine. Okay, fine. I'll do it. One of the most surprising things in the world to me, that he hasn't preached Galatians chapter three, that he isn't, he just, okay, fine. I think it's really big of him, really big of him to swallow his theological lump, if you would, and be like, fine, I'll go, I'll go with the flow. I've talked with a couple of families where the husband was just so dead set on a certain theology and his second tier, I'm like, bro, give that up, man. Give it up for your wife. It does not matter. In fact, I'm dealing with one right now. That, does, that is so second tier, who cares? No, 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 no. Okay, you're gonna lose your wife. And that's what's gonna happen. It breaks my heart. Really? You're gonna just swallow it and be like, second tier. There are things you can never swallow. What the gospel is, who Jesus is, God as creator, the authority of scripture, sin. Man, you never swallow those things. But second tier stuff? Man, I'll choose my wife any day over some second tier theological system or idea. No way. And that's what Paul does. Okay, fine. I will swallow this because I have a zeal for Jesus. And the zeal for Jesus causes me to say, I'll become all things to all men that by all means, I might see some saved. And that's Paul's motive. So here's what happens. Verse 47, 27. When the seven days were almost complete, I love that. I think it's Luke just saying, God wasn't gonna let this happen. They almost got there. They almost got where Paul was gonna make a sacrifice. And the seven days were almost completed. 
the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Is that a (laughs) hyperbole there? (laughs) Against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He hasn't done any of that. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. I love that. Like the temple's like, go ahead and do what you're going to do. We're going to shut our gates. Just don't do it here. Like just classic law stuff. We don't care what you do with him out there. They're like, hey, protect him. Let's do justice. Let's, no, go kill him. Just not here. So they close the gates as they're seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. (laughs) Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him. I love that. The dude getting beat up, he gets arrested. How fair is that? We just stopped beating him. Who are we gonna arrest? The guy that's all bloody down there. Yeah, arrest him. Yeah. And they saw the tribune, they stopped. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowds were shouting one thing, some of the other, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him. Very similar to a cry that had been heard in Jerusalem 20 years before this, when Jesus was there. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? He said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22. So he gets day one day done, day two done, day three done, day four done, day five done, day six done. He's headed into the seventh day when sacrifice and the whole thing will be completed. And then it stopped. I think God said, I'm not gonna let you do this. I'm not letting you go that far. And God stops it. So he gets grabbed by this mob. They beat the snot out of him. How much damage could a mob do in a couple minutes? I'm surprised he's alive, right? So he gets saved by this captain. Now, if that happened to you, what would you say to the captain? Take me to jail, please put me in a jail, right? What does Paul say? Man, thank you God for this crowd that's here. Awesome. Can I preach Jesus? Did you just get killed for preaching Jesus? Yeah, but they haven't heard me say it this way. I'm gonna say it different this time. (laughs) I love this guy. And next week we'll see this. He does not give an expository message from the Old Testament. What does he give? His testimony. I love that. Because guess what? Anyone can give their testimony. That's all Paul does. This is what Jesus did in my life. This is what Jesus did in my life. I think that is a fantastic model, right? So was this a mistake for Paul? I think so. But it was a mistake made for the best motive in the world. I love Jesus and I love these people in Jerusalem and I want them to know my Jesus. 
And because it was that mistake, I think God just protects him. It's that integrity of heart. Paul wasn't doing it to throw it in their face or to be, you know, a lightning rod on purpose. He was doing it because he truly loved these people. Romans chapter nine. I would give my own, I would go to hell to see my brother saved. And because his heart was that, Proverbs 11.3 says, the integrity of a man's heart will protect him. I think Paul's integrity just protects him here. It protects him. It just goes back to a simple saying that I've never forgot. The heart of the issue is always an issue of the heart. Was Paul right or wrong? Was God's will here or there? I don't know how much that matters, but Paul's heart was clean and pure. And that's what matters. That God is not playing the shell game with his will. Like, you know, which shell is it under? Pick one. He's not doing that. He's like, do you love me? Do you love people? Will this let you do that better? Go for it. Go for it. I think that's what we see with Paul. And now he gets his one-way trip to Rome. So Jesus, as we come to the table tonight, maybe some are asking what your will is. May they know that you don't hide your will. What you're really looking for is simple hearts that have been caught up in your majesty, that have found Treasure Island and wanna invite all their friends to the same spot. You're looking for people like that. And when we have hearts like that, your will is easy. Doesn't mean the way will be easy, but your will is. So I ask Lord tonight as we partake in the cup and the bread, I pray that the dust and the dirt of this world would be cleansed from us. That as we eat of you, we'd be reminded of the incredible nature of your holy love, that it's so different than we can imagine, that we don't have categories for it, that it's out of this world. It's so good, it's so brilliant, it's so right that it's called the unspeakable gift. We can't put it into words, but by your spirit, would you put it into our souls tonight as we eat?